Good morning. So what's been going on? Um, this morning we're continuing on with our teaching series, looking at the life of Joseph from the book of Genesis. And if you were with us last week, there is a lot of action that's taken place between what we read last week and what we are going to read today. Um, what happened last week, if you remember, is that we were still seeing Joseph, this young man from Genesis who is a uh, self-righteous, entitled brat who has these dreams. And his dreams are about how his brothers and his family are all going to bow down before him because they recognize how great he is. And he is so kind of out of touch that he goes to his brothers and says, guys, guess what? I've had this dream. It's really awesome. All of you are going to bow down on the ground and acknowledge my greatness. Who's excited? Right? And his brothers are not as excited as Joseph is about it. And what we read last week was their response, which is way out of proportion and evil and horrible. But what they do is they plot his death. And then, because they're having a kind of generous moment, they decide not to kill him when they, he comes out to them in the field where they're uh, shepherding uh, sheep. But what they do is they go easier on him and sell him as a slave to slave traders going to Egypt. That's where we left off last week. And between that and what we read today, Joseph kind of goes in Egypt from bad to worse, okay? He uh, is a slave in Egypt, a place he's never been, doesn't know the language, doesn't know the customs. Um, he shows up and is sold as a slave into the house of a wealthy Egyptian named Potiphar. And he works in Potiphar's house. And while he is working in Potiphar's house, Potiphar puts him, he kind of promotes him uh, up the ranks to being the head servant, the head slave in the house. Uh, and Joseph is kind of running the house. And while he's doing that, Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of a crime. Joseph has not committed this crime, but he's a slave and it doesn't matter. He is put into prison. He has no trial. There's no chance to appear before a jury of his peers to prove his innocence. There's no attorney that helps him out. He is just accused of this crime. And as a slave, he has no rights and he's thrown into jail. And jail worked differently at the time than the kind of jail Joseph was in. Because here we think, well, if you go to jail for a crime, it's like eight to 10 years. And maybe with good behavior, you're out earlier than that. Maybe. That's not how it worked. Joseph was in prison to rot. There was no chance of him getting out. This is the rest of his life, sold by his brothers into slavery, sent to Egypt, and now falsely accused of a crime and thrown into jail forever. And that's where we find him today. Scripture passage starts in Genesis 39, verse 20. Thank you, Derek. Correct scripture passage. I appreciate that. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He remained there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker offended the, their lord, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the home of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he waited on them, and they continued for some time in custody. One night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own meaning. 
When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that no matter who we are, how we walk in here, that you would speak to us this day. We pray boldly in Jesus' name that you will form us into new creation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is a weird passage of scripture, and it's weird because you would think that Joseph would be really different than how we find him here, right? I mean, this, this is a brother who's been through some hard stuff. His family has sold him into slavery. His father thinks he's dead. His brothers are lying to his father, telling him they're dead. They have no interest in coming and finding him at all. He finally arrives in the home of someone in Egypt as a slave, and just when he starts kind of advancing a little bit and getting some responsibility and feeling like things are up, he's falsely accused of a crime. He has no ability to respond to that accusation, and he is thrown into prison to rot. This is a guy that understandably should be angry, should be outraged, should be um, maybe cynical, maybe he should just be despondent, feeling like there's no hope anymore, that nothing good can happen. It would be understandable if Joseph was any of these things. And yet what we find is him going around seeking to serve the needs of the other prisoners which is weird, right? I mean, he even goes to the other prisoners and he still's got some of that naive stuff because he goes to like the chief cupbearer and the baker and he's like, why are you downcast today? He's like, we're in prison, man. Like we've been thrown into jail in Egypt. And we have, like how long do you have for us to tell you why are we despondent today? Well, this is why, it's awful. That's what we would expect out of Joseph. Yet he's like going around taking care of anybody. The guards are like honoring him and saying, well, we see that you're good at this. And they put him in charge of other prisoners and he's worrying about it. And he's gone a long way from where we first encounter him. He's gone a long way from this guy who's like, hey, everybody's gonna bow down in front of me who's excited about that. To all of a sudden he's like caring for other people when he has a right to be outraged. This is what I want us to spend a couple of minutes thinking about today. What does it mean to see somebody who has changed in this kind of way, whose life is starting to look different than where you first saw him. And that what I want to suggest to you is that if God is recreating a life, and that is a huge miraculous statement. It is a huge statement to say today in Austin, Texas in 2017 at Covenant Presbyterian Church that the God who created the universe is interested in you. That is a, that is a bold and audacious claim to make. And not only is God interested in you, but God is working in your life, leading you, leading your family, leading you, leading your family, leading, God cares and is making things happen, and God is recreating your life. That is a huge statement to make. And what I want us to ask the question is, is that when God is doing that, do we notice any patterns to how God creates things new? Because one way Joseph could change, we said last week, pain changes us, failure changes us. That's where we often change is in our struggles. But Joseph could have changed by becoming bitter or cynical or full of self-pity or wallowing in self-pity. And we would have just looked at him and been like, yeah, I mean, I get that. But something starts to happen in him that is shocking, and yet it follows a pattern in Scripture of how God works. I want you to hear this. Anytime God creates something, there is order to it. 
There is design to it. There is a pattern to it. And we have to hear that in our world today because you and I today live in a culture where we have elevated every individual and every individual's perspective to, a, to an unhealthy level where everybody gets to decide who they are and what they're about and what they think and what they believe. That, that can be your truth, but it's not my truth. Nobody can tell me what my truth is because as an individual, I have that right to declare what I believe is true, which sort of defeats the nature of truth, doesn't it? That can be your standards to think, but don't impose that on me and my standards because I get to choose what standards I'm going to live by and not. I am an individual, and no one can impose that in on me. I get to decide what my life's going to look like. And you know what? We're seeing this more and more, the extreme case of this more and more today. People are saying that we live in a post-factual society. I hear that information. I don't believe it. Those aren't my facts. You know where that comes from? That comes from the individual over years in our society being able to go, I get to choose what I believe. To now the fact we can present facts to people and it's like, I don't believe it. Why? Do you have evidence to the contrary? Nope. I just choose different facts. And nobody can say anything about it. This is where we are today, and it has evolved over time. And so it is a huge thing to say, man, when God creates something, yes, Joseph could have gotten bitter. Yes, he could have wallowed in self pity. Yes, he could have done all this, and it would have been justifiable. But God, when he creates, there is order to it. There is design. It's not that God's going to do this in you, and this in you, and this in you, and this in you, and everyone's going to get to choose what it is looks like for them, and it's all special. It has order to it. Let me give you an example. When we think about this change happening in Joseph from this self-centered guy to somebody that's caring for prisoners. In the New Testament, I want to bring up a, a passage of Scripture from Galatians chapter 5. This was written thousands of years after Joseph. Do we have it? Thank you. Um, and this is written by the Apostle Paul, who's writing about to Christians in the early church, talking about what does it look like when God changes a life? And he says that it doesn't just feel different. Do you feel different? Yes. Do you feel comfortable with how you feel? Yes, I feel affirmed in that. Good, then it's Okay. Paul says, no, there are certain markers if God is changing your life. And it's bigger than a feeling. It's about fruit. And he says, if you're being changed by God, that God's order is going to look like something in your life. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I want to leave these up here for a second. Thousands of years later, Paul is saying, if you want to know if God's changing your life, you should see this fruit. If you have people who love you that say you're less patient than you were five years ago, that should be a real red flag to you. These things should just happen. And here's the deal. You don't pursue these things by saying, man, I'm going to discipline myself. This week, I'm going to be patient, man. I'm going to do it. My kids are driving me crazy, but this week, I will be patient. That'll last for 20 minutes. It will not last. This isn't stuff you pursue as a discipline, Paul says. This just happens. This is the kind of stuff that when God's shaping your heart, you know it's God because people look at you and go, man, you are, you are more patient than you were before. And you're like, really? It's just happening. It's just the fruit of what happens when God is designing. And this, I would submit to you, is a great description of the change happening in Joseph. He's becoming kinder. He's becoming more patient. He's becoming more loving, which how we define love is not a feeling, but that is action serving other people, putting service into action. He is doing that with the other prisoners. He is showing more self-control. He is being more generous. These are some of the best descriptions because it's not that God's doing something different in Joseph's life than he'll do in yours. This is the order of how God creates. So what does that mean for you? If we say that here today God can recreate a life 
to look more like this. How do we engage that? How do we engage what God's doing in Joseph's life and the Apostle Paul's life and many others? Well, a helpful framework to me comes from an author named Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr is an author who wrote a book called Falling Upward that helped frame this really well for me of what this spiritual development and God's change looks like. Richard Rohr says that if you think about your life, he says, he says that in his book Falling Upward that if you think of life, he said life works really in two halves. It's like a football game or a basketball game. It's first half, second half. And he says that the first half of life is something that everybody, if they're going to be happy, joyful, and fulfilled, you've got to walk through the first half of life. It has to happen. You can't avoid it. It's natural to us. And he says that what the first half of life is, the first half of life is that when we are really intent on what my dreams are, I'm going to have this kind of life, I'm going to be a success in this business, I'm going to build this thing up, my family's going to look this way, my kids are going to look this way, we're going to have a Volvo station wagon and a white picket fence and golden doodles who don't shed everywhere, we're going to have Christmas cards that we send out that are going to just be amazing as we get to talk about our accomplishments in the past year where everyone will be jealous of what it is. We are going to have that life and put it up. And so I build that. It's the questions, it's first half of life questions we ask high school students. I know you guys get sick of asking, as you, hearing as you get towards the end of, of, of high school and you get to the end of college, like, what are you going to do after you graduate? What are you going to do after you graduate? Where are you going to go to college? Where are you going to go to college? What are you going to study? What's your major going to be? Right? Those are all first half of life questions. What are your dreams? What are your goals? What kind of life are you going to build? What kind of family do you want to have? What do you want to do? Roar says everyone has to do that. That's what Joseph is doing, right? Hey, this is great. Everyone's going to bow down before me. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be a success and known for it. But what Richard Rohr says is that as much as we have these dreams and we work for them and we have goals for them and we have objectives for them and we sacrifice for them, he says in every single person's life, there is a moment and actually many moments where we fall, where our dreams disappear in front of us. Maybe you don't get into the college that you were supposed to get in so that you have this amazing life that you're going to have. Maybe your parents get a divorce and it changes dynamics in your life that throw you in a completely different direction. Maybe you get the dream job, but they downsize at your company and you're left not certain what happens next. Maybe you met the person who you're going to have the great kids with, who are going to have the great life to put on the Christmas card with the golden doodles that everybody is going to look at, and then that person leaves you for someone else. Maybe you deal with a death or an illness in your family or someone close to you. Maybe your kids aren't as driven in the stuff that you need them to be driven in to make that Christmas card work right, and you're not certain what to do with it anymore. Maybe you deal with a chronic illness where you have to take care of somebody. Richard Rohr writes that life is full of falls. Things that happen where we just say, I don't know what to do, but all of a sudden I can or it doesn't make sense anymore to pursue this life that I dreamed of. And that's where Rohr says the important part for people of faith comes in. Because he says, just like Joseph, when that happens, and it happens in all of our lives, that those are moments when we can get bitter or get angry or wallow in self-pity. And Rohr says no one should judge that, just like we couldn't judge Joseph if he was that way in prison. Who are we to judge that? But Rohr says that for people of faith, that, that fall in life doesn't have to mean that we fall apart. But it can be the moment, as he writes, when we fall upward. When we fall into something new. 
where we believe even in the moment and hold on to that idea that as everything has collapsed around us, that God has not abandoned us, but is starting to refashion and recreate our life in new ways. And he says that the people who struggle the most with that are the ones who are like, man, this happened, but it's a minor roadblock, and we're going to power through it, and I'm going to hold on to that dream, and I'm going to become a success, and I'm going to like clinch that dream of first half of life even more. And Roar says, even if it happens, you become a hardened, bitter, isolated person. That spiritually coming alive, having the fruit of the Spirit, which is a second half of life kind of way of living, that that comes only when we open ourselves to, Lord, what do you want to do? Joseph looks around and makes the determination of, what if God's still here? I can be faithful in serving. That might be all I have the authority to do anymore. But if I believe God's here with me still doing something, I can do that. And he enters into what Rohr says is the second half of life. He says, Rohr says in the second half of life, you have to think about it. He said, the, the first half of life, you're building a structure. This will be my life. The second half of life is where we learn to celebrate God filling that structure with something that looks totally different than what we thought it would be. And it's those people who have the fruit of the Spirit, or as Paul says. Think, think, now, I'm going to end with this. Think about this pattern and how you see it. Think about it how you see it in the people you admire. First half of life, this is what I'll be. Fall, recreation into something new. Think about it in the life of Joseph is what's happening here. Think about it maybe in the life of the Apostle Paul. He was going to be a Pharisee, man. He was going to be a Pharisee among all Pharisees. It was a fair position you had to work for. You had to get into the right school. You had to do all the right things. You had to be acknowledged as a success. Paul was the guy that walked around that other people looked at and said to their kids, if you work really hard someday, you can be like that. And then he falls. And on the road to Damascus, he encounters the risen Jesus. And his life is shaped into something totally new where he writes in the last letter that we have in the New Testament, even though he's not a success and he is waiting his execution in prison, he writes about things like the fruit of the Spirit, and he says, my joy is now complete. Am I famous? Am I the guy that people look at anymore? He's got all the Twitter followers and everything else. No, all of that has been taken away. But he says, my joy is now complete. Who wants that life? I do. He says, because to live is Christ and to die is gain. I am operating in a totally different set of criteria of success and what life is about because I have given up. I have not clenched to that first half of life vision, but I have fallen upward into something new. Think about heroes of the faith like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who encountered this in Nazi Germany. Think about people like Mother Teresa and her journey in Calcutta. Think about journeys that you see of people you want to emulate. They almost always follow this pattern. First half of life, fall, and then the moment of recreation. I close with this. I don't know if you noticed this yesterday, but there were some marches taking place in cities around the world. I'm aware of the fact it is a dangerous thing for a male pastor to say anything about the marches that took place yesterday. But why would I let that stop me? <laughs> because I have two little girls. I have two daughters. And like many of you who are parents, 
You probably have people that you look at that you hope your children emulate someday. Maybe not follow all the patterns of their life, maybe not follow the behaviors, but they have characteristics that you look at going, I hope my children are like this. And when Beth and I think about our two girls and the lives that we dream of them living, almost every single person we have thought about follows this pattern of first half of life fall, second half. It's not the conquerors who always had it right. It's the people who were allowed themselves to be recreated in the fall. I have annoyed Beth, which I have a spiritual gift at doing. Over the last weeks as I've been preparing for this sermon, like thinking about different people going, you see the pattern again. You see the pattern in them. It's like, oh my gosh, you see this pattern. First half of life fall. She's like, I get it. I get it. I see the pattern. When are you preaching this sermon so that you can talk to other people about this and not just me about the pattern? I get it. But one lady we talked about is Carol. Carol is somebody who has traits that we have always thought about that we hope our girls emulate when we think about the kind of women that we hope that they will become. Carol is somebody who I first met her, she was in her 60s and was leading medical mission trips in Africa, taking people over to Africa to care and provide health services over there. And I asked Carol when I first met her, how does someone get to do this? How does someone from where you're from in the United States get to do this? And she says, through pain. That's how that happens. She said, see, I grew up in an affluent household. We made no mission trips. We didn't do anything like that. We were kind of living at the top rung of society. And she said, growing up as a young woman, that I totally knew what my life was going to look like. Now, I had the opportunity to go to school, and I did, and I worked hard, and I made good grades, and I went to the right college. And everyone you know, you know what the right colleges are. They're the ones that your parents are like, good job. Glad you're going there, right? We know, she goes, I knew what the right colleges were. I got into the right colleges. I was going to have the right job when I got out of college. And then when I got out of college, at some point in there, I needed to meet the right person, and I was going to marry them. And that was going to be what we were, and we were going to have kids, and they were going to have golden doodles, and we were going to have the Christmas cards, and the white picket fence, and the Volvos, everything else. We have the jobs, we're going to have the kids, we're going to have the drive, we're going to have everything. It's all going to work out. That's going to be my life. It's what my parents had, it's what I have, it's what my kids have, it's how it's going to work. She said, I met the right guy. Had the right job, made the right grace, met him, we got engaged, his family like me, I went to the right college, my family liked him, he went to the right college, everything is right to the continuation of the pattern, and then weeks away from the wedding, he called me to let me know he was breaking it off. And I was devastated and left sitting there with the ruins of my life, of what I knew it was supposed to be. And in church, a couple of weeks later, as I was praying and crying about this, I heard of an opportunity to go on a short-term mission trip to Africa, and she thought, what do I have to lose? I'll go try. She said, change my life over there. Changed my life over there. Saw things, saw faith, saw faith in Jesus come alive, saw need that I didn't know existed in the world, came back to the States, got her nursing license, and for decades lived on the front lines of health crises in Africa, never got married, never had kids, never had the, the prestige or the money, never had the lifestyle that she assumed she was going to have. All of that went away. But Carol fought on the front lines of the Ebola crisis, has fought on the front lines of HIV and AIDS, has fought on the front lines of malaria, has encountered illness herself as she has battled in these places, fighting for justice and fighting for health care for all of God's people, believing that even people who have nothing are created equally in the image of God. And Carol is a woman who is a woman of courage and compassion and faith and conviction, who lives her life in alignment with what those things are. And I would love to promise my girls that they are going to be raised in a world where everything is going to be great, and you'll never fall down, and good always comes out in every chapter of the story on top, and nothing can ever happen that affects that, and that is setting themselves up for failure and disappointment, because that is not life. 
But life is a place that when we fall as people of faith, we believe that we do not fall alone, that we can open our eyes and raise our vision to the fact that God can recreate and create something new. Friends, the hard part in this is that you can't go choose it. You can't leave here. It's like, man, I'm ready for second half of life, and I'm ready to fall. You're act- if you think that, you're not, okay? <laughs> Falling is never fun, and you can't cause it to happen. But what you can do is be aware of this pattern in your own life, in your own development, and you encourage others who are walking through difficult times. Because what I ultimately want for my daughters is to be women who have the grace and strength and courage and faith that when the world or our nation or our society or our family or their individual lives falls apart, which it will, that they have the courage to believe that they might fall upward into the second half of life and have joy. May we all have such faith and such courage in these days that we find ourselves our families, our world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to believe that this promise that we see in Joseph, that as he falls upward into the second half of life, that this promise is real for us. We pray in this and trust in this pattern and this promise for ourselves, for all whom we love. We pray this and trust in this in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, before we go, let's stand and sing one last song together.